AI with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. And welcome to today's episode of the RoboHub podcast, in which we'll discuss societal implications of AI, with a particular focus on AI applications in law and legal systems. With a myriad of documents and information now stored electronically, efficient and reliable data review and analytic services are needed to support searches for electronic information, and this includes searches that may be carried out to support law counsel. AI in this context has huge potential to support document review and key document identification. And there are companies offering advanced AI platforms that do just that. But as always, any application of AI comes with its own challenges and implications, particularly when applied in highly confidential settings, such as legal systems. In February this year, a global governance of AI Roundtable, hosted by the government of the United Arab Emirates and Harvard's Kennedy School, brought together a diverse group of leaders from tech companies, governments and academia to discuss the societal implications and to lay out guidelines for the global governance of AI. Our interviewer Andrew speaks with Nicholas Ikonomu, CEO of the e-discovery company H5, and co-founder and chair of the Science, Law and Society Initiative at Harvard's Kennedy School. They discuss how AI is applied in the legal system and some of the key messages from the recent roundtable, which Economo chaired. Welcome to RoboHub Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Thank you very much. Uh, I am uh, Nicholas Economo. I'm the CEO of a Silicon Valley-based company called H5, and I am also the chair of the uh, Science, Law, and Society Initiative of the uh, Future Society. Could you could you tell me a little bit more about H5? Sure. Uh, H5 is a company that is focused on the commercialization of artificial intelligence and information retrieval systems. Uh, for the legal industry. And I understand that H5 has actually been applying those technologies for quite a long time. It's been nearly 20 years. And so I'm sure that AI has come and gone through many phases during that time. Could you just speak a little bit to that? Sure, yes. We, uh, I think uh, most people in our extended industry would consider us as pioneers in the application of artificial intelligence, broadly defined, to uh, legal endeavors. Uh, back in the day, it was an, an incredibly difficult uh, sort of pitch, difficult to convince uh, practitioners that artificial intelligence and information retrieval could contribute to their work. Uh, and that's understandable. They're very conservative by nature. Uh, but over time, courts and litigants and lawyers have gone, come to become more comfortable with it. And there has been a true, uh, I would say, somewhat quiet, but uh, a consistent uh, increase in the use of AI across a number of legal domains. So you mentioned information retrieval. What, is, what does that mean? In the, in the simplest form is what you do when you type a search in Google. You have something in mind you're trying to find. 
and uh, you create a query and some engine goes and find the answer for you. Uh, in the legal world, the engine that used to go find the information for you tended to be young associates, uh, young law graduates, who often in their, ten, in their dozens would be looking through boxes of uh, paper documents and more recently electronic documents to find what you wanted. And what information retrieval allows you to do as a science is exactly as it serves you on the web. It allows you to, with ever greater automation and ease, to find the information you want without having to rely on people to actually do the work for you. Could you give me an example of the kind of scale of things that, that are possible to you know, uh, retrieve when you apply AI that, that might not have been possible in the past? Sure. In, in the legal domain, especially, uh, the most perhaps uh, pervasive and interesting application is in fact-finding. Uh, which in our lingo we call electronic discovery. And all that means is that in the legal system in the U.S., when there is a litigation or when the government investigates you, you have to hand over sometimes terabytes of data. And then it's all about, and that's all emails and corporate documents, and it's all about determining who knew what when, what happened how. And so there you are, you're the senior lawyer, the senior investigator, and you want to find indications of fraud. Well, you can't read all these documents. And what AI allows you to do, if well applied, what information retrieval allows you to do, and with the people with the right competencies to apply it, it allows you to apply your judgment to, say, 10 million documents and go and find the exact nuggets of information that you would have found if you had had, you know, a thousand years to read every single document in the greatest detail. In short, AI applies your judgment to masses of information and finds, it, find what, finds what you want for you. Wonderful. Let's let's dive a little bit deeper into those algorithms for you know some of our listeners who might be interested in data science. What are some of the the technical challenges in applying those algorithms? Sure, uh, and I like how you fo formulated that question. It's not that much about the algorithms themselves, as about how you apply them. So it turns out that uh, U.S. NIST, which is an entity under the Department of Commerce, did some studies to assess how well AI systems did in precisely the sorts of tasks I described. And what was interesting is that the research suggests that what made the difference between the systems that seem to do the best at replicating and automating these complex human judgments and those that didn't do as well was not really the underlying algorithms, but how they were used and the competencies of the, uh, of the operator. So to put it in simple terms, it looked like, and again, this is suggested by the research. There was a meta study done on it, but you know, it's, I wouldn't say call it conclusive evidence, but that the systems that did the best were those where the AI process was designed and executed and measured by people with scientific competencies. Those systems where the operator was somebody not trained in science, was a lawyer or a paralegal, they tended to do less well or more erratically. So the main challenge, I would say, is not that much the choice of algorithm itself. It's really, do you know how to define what the person who wants to find something, how to define their goal? And two, you know, are you a good driver at the wheel of this AI to actually achieve the goal? And do you have the skill sets? And that's a very overlooked, I think, area of uh, the study of AI systems. In general, I think that you know, we hear a lot of promising things about AI systems in the future, but there can also be some risks. Have you run into uh, any such examples in your work? 
Absolutely. I think in the legal domain is very interesting because AI has been present over the past decade. And an example of a risk is in uh, the judicial system, in, the, in criminal sentencing. So there is a well-known case called Loomis in which a judge in Wisconsin relied in part, and I want to underscore in part because the judge looked at a lot of information, but the judge looked in part at uh, how a secret algorithm uh, assessed the defendant, the extent to which the I'm sorry, the extent to which the defendant was a risk of recidivism, and because the secret algorithm assessed that person to be a high risk of recidivism, in part because of that, the judge uh, sort of uh, sentenced the defendant to the longest possible uh, term of six years, and the very interesting part of this is that the defendant tried to uh, ask to look into the algorithm. And the judge denied that request. So it is truly the case the secret algorithm was used in part to take somebody's liberty away. So that is, one could say, the kinds of risks that we as society run when we don't have norms for the adoption of AI. Speaking of, of norms for the adoption of AI, I understand that in, in February you attended an event that was uh, hosted by the government of the United Arab Emirates and the Future Society at Harvard's Kennedy School. Can you tell me about that event? Sure. So the uh, UAE is hosting for now the sixth year an event that brings together global leaders from governments, multilateral organizations, uh, nonprofits, industry, to talk about the problems of humanity and find a platform to discuss them and address them. And uh, this year, uh, I think in a very forward-looking uh, sort of construct, the state minister for artificial intelligence of the UAE, because there is such a, a minister in the UAE, uh, decided to uh, create the first global governance of AI roundtable and to bring uh, about 100 of uh, the leading, uh, I would say, thought leaders uh, from industry, academia, and elsewhere to talk about the norms that should govern AI, and more than to talk about it, to really start uh, sort of to create a governance forum that would be hosted hopefully annually. That's what we understand the intent of the minister is, to bring together uh, this group of experts to over time create recommendations for public policy that hopefully would be consensus-driven and serve as a reference to the world. I think that's very interesting that, that the UAE has a minister di directed specifically at AI uh, do you feel like um, the level that governments in general are, are spending uh, on AI or paying attention to AI is insufficient at the moment? I think it is fair to say that generally the legislative process in particular is substantially behind the realities on the ground of technology. Uh, and that's because technology moves so fast and legislation moves so slow. And that's precisely why uh, we, as the, as the Future Society, we applaud the initiative of the UAI, of the, of the UAE, sorry. They actually have an initiative called UAI to mention their centrality in the artificial intelligence world. But we, we applaud this initiative of the UAE, and we're very proud as a Future Society to be in, invited to help support the organization of this, of this, uh, of this event. Uh, I'll, I'll just add one thing to this, which is the Future Society mains mission is not to set up conferences to talk about the hypotheticals of the future, is to really drive an organized dialogue around governance. What should be the norms? 
that guide societies as they think about the extent to which they will surrender to machines, decisions that affect people. Could you give uh, some examples of the conversations or the questions that came up at this first meeting of the Global Governance AI Roundtable? Sure. I would say this was very much a sort of a, a starting event. So some basic questions seeded the dialogue. I should say it was what's called the Chatham House rule. So I can't really disclose names, but I can convey some of what was talked about. Generally, uh, in every committee, there were various committees, including a, a law committee that I had the honor to be asked to chair, looked at uh, sort of the uses of AI and applications and compared notes among amongst the countries and continents. Uh, so in our case, where it's used in the U.S. compared to other countries, then there was a structured discussion uh, comparing risks and benefits. The great benefit of AI in the law could be that you lower the cost of access to the law and therefore you create much more uh, easy, you know, easier access to justice for people who today may not have as much access to it. But there are also very significant risks such as bias and so on. Um, then in this structured dialogue, we looked at governance frameworks so what are leading entities? One of them is the IEEE, which is the sort of brotherhood of engineers out there in the, in the world, 400,000 members, the Future Society, and others. What do they propose as, governing, as uh, you know, governance frameworks, uh, ethical principles? And from there, we started to think about you know, what's, what the next steps might be to continue to operationalize these frameworks and, and pr produce recommendations. It seems like a very deep and challenging question to come up with, a, with an ethical framework for AI because AI is going to be so pervasive and, and already is to, to a large extent. So how do you even start? Yeah, that's a very good question. So the first thing we need to recognize is that some of the challenges that relate to the ethics of AI are similar to those that relate to the governance of human intelligence, right? Human intelligence can be used for bad and good, and artificial intelligence has the same challenge. Uh, in terms of finding common ground, and that's a very good question because very often people focus on what uh, separates us as peoples around the world, uh, but in the UAE especially, we focused on sort of discussing common ground, and there is common ground across cultures, and philosophers, philosophers have said that better than I have in the past, but we all recognize that uh, all human beings are born equal in rights and dignity. We all recognize that war, that war is, I'm sorry, that peace is better than war, that respect is better than humiliation, uh, that uh, you know, pr dignity uh, is better than diminishment and so on. And these kind of common values that really cut across all cultures create actually surprisingly strong foundations for a dialogue. I, I imagine in that dialogue, you could, you could go two directions. You could ask, how should we apply AI to the law in terms of making it more efficient, as you mentioned? Um, but in the opposite case, you know, how should we apply the law to AI? Exactly what, what laws should be made, what norms should be set? Um, so do you know any examples of, of uh, things that countries are trying, regulations that are kind of in the works or, or maybe will prove to be best practices or learning experiences for the rest of the world? Yes. So I'd like to mention, I think, two, two, two examples. One is what the European Union is doing. So the EU has been working on a framework called the GDPR, which is focused on, I'm not going to go into technical details, but it's focused on protecting the privacy of citizens. And this is becoming especially important because now, obviously, as you know, uh, personal data can be siphoned off so many 
media and even outside through cameras and where we are with our cell phone, where we walk, etc. Email metadata. So how do you protect that? So there is a, a thrust in the EU in particular to create regulation that is, I think, uh, very interesting and very how can I say, conscious of the fragility of the citizen and the need to protect the citizen. So I think that's, it's, it's mature, part of it is coming into effect, actually, the GDPR uh, in May, but there are a whole number of discussions going on around the use of automated decision-making, et cetera. Another example that I think is a very hopeful example that comes from the U.S. and also from the law is how uh, AI has been applied to fact-finding, which I mentioned earlier, it used to be that AI was used in the wild to try to find facts in litigation or investigations. So the question was, well, how can we as a society trust that AI works in these real-world applications and that justice is actually delivered based on all the facts and we're not missing things? And it turns out that today, after a long and pretty extensive dialogue amongst many stakeholders, many courts are adopting two very simple metrics that are scientifically sound, but easy for you and me to understand between zero and 100 so that we as citizens feel empowered to understand did the AI work in this specific context. So there, there is, this is not quite law yet, but it's certainly the, the adoption of these measurements, is AI working, is being slowly adopted in the legal system, which I think is extremely hopeful and is a guide for maybe other domains. So when you talk about metrics, uh, I, I think that's very curious because there are some AI uh, algorithms that are, you know, effectively a black box. And so they might perform very well on some metrics on some test set where you've uh, evaluated their performance. Um, but at the same time, it's a little bit unnerving if you can't explain them. Uh, how do people deal with those issues? Okay, that, that's, that's actually an excellent question. I think it's something that's underexamined. So let me take an analogy. The, the the reason why you know the car that you'll buy is safe is not because you have transparency into the very complex, as we call it, socio-technical system that produced it. And even if Toyota opened up all of their algorithms to you of all the technology they use, you would not know if the car is safe. You know the car is safe because the Institute of Highway for Highway Safety takes the end product of this, crashes it in 10 different ways, and then can derive statistics as to which car is safe or not. And the analogy to AI is the following, is you can look at all the inputs and the algorithms, and as you alluded to, still not know if it works in the real-world uh, scenario in which it's used. And so the metrics I mentioned in the law specifically, and I won't go into details, are very analogous to what the, the you know, sort of the ratings of the uh, Institute for Highway Safety are, because they tell you and me as consumers, and they tell lawyers and judges, without even knowing all the algorithms and everything that was done to get to this result, did the result meet the objective, right? Just like did the result of all this car manufacturing meet the objective of creating a safe car? You don't need to look at what Toyota, how Toyota did it, you know if it's safe or not. So there, there is, the analogy works in many domains and I think is a very hopeful example in way of thinking about how to provide citizens and institutions of society a simple way to understand whether the complex systems involved in producing AI and producing outputs of AI are actually effective. In the case of vehicles, it seems like, uh, you know, people have grown naturally to trust those ratings more and more over time. Um, but in this kind of fledgling period for, for AI in the public view, do you think there's a risk that there will be a trust issue, even if the metrics look good? 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And even in the law where those metrics have been available thanks to the work of U.S. NIST for a decade, it's only now that courts are try are start starting to rely on them more. And that brings me to another point, which is how do you create trust? Because I agree with you, trust is vital. You create trust by creating norms of competence. And so let me take another example quickly. Why is it that if we trust scalpel-wielding humans to operate on our bodies, right? We trust them because society has developed norms that say, if you're going to be using a scalpel on another human, you will need to have the following degrees, have passed the following tests, have the following examination certifications, and we can trust that you're a qualified surgeon. And that's why we trust you with that. And I think it's a very interesting question, maybe for a, a future podcast of yours, which is what emerging norms and professions will exist whose purpose will be the design, execution, and measurement for efficacy of AI systems that combine AI and human intelligence to produce results, especially in critical domains of society, like the law, like financial services, like medicine, and so on. So I think to create trust, we need to think about what norms, what standards should exist of competence so that not you and I don't get to say, hey, I'm good enough to use AI to diagnose somebody, right? Uh, so I think trust requires metrics, it requires competence, and it also requires transparency. Although transparency, me for me as a citizen, I could look at every algorithm you want. I could I couldn't make head or tail of those. So the the type of people who would attend a, a global governance meeting are are obviously you know kind of in some sense the good guys. They're the ones who care about the public good and they want to make sure that that's maximized. Um, but you know AI is is a double edged sword. I'm sure that there are organizations throughout the world that are using it in more nefarious ways. And, you know, recently in the news in the United States, there's been a lot of talk about, uh, you know, fake accounts or the ability to, uh, you know, pretend to be a human, something that was an innocuous thing, like a chatbot can then be weaponized into something for political means. Uh, could you just speak a little bit about that? Sure. So, yeah, I, I, uh, I like I like to think that all of us who gathered in uh, in Dubai were the the good guys, and I think there are a lot of good guys. I think generally we need to accept as a society that every technology ever invented since the invention of the wheel has been dual purpose, has served good and has served bad, and we cannot preclude AI for, uh, from being used for bad. So, what we can do is this: one is we can create norms to govern AI, just like we created norms to govern nuclear energy. Uh, and it's a hopeful example. We all know that it can be used extremely destructively or for peaceful reasons. And the world somehow came together and so far has been able to govern the bad side of it, mostly certainly since after the war. It doesn't mean that there is no risk at all that it will be misused in the future and, you know, heaven forbid. Uh, but the the world came together. And I think that serves as a hopeful example. There are treaties like that on anti-personal minds and on, to a great extent, on, uh, you know, uh, the weather, etc. So uh, I think governance is, is really important. And I do think that we need to be prepared for the day where something catastrophic may happen, like cyber attacks. And you may have seen the, the report on the malicious use of AI that came out a few days ago. Uh, but for me, there is a much greater challenge which is the slow, pervasive, insidious way in which AI takes over in everyday life. And I can talk about that a bit if you, if you yeah, want. Yeah, definitely. I I've, would love to hear about that, especially because you sometimes hear about people wanting to make formal models for you know, either legal reasoning or for 
um, in the in the case of uh, politics, maybe deciding where district lines should be to decide exactly where your vote counts. Um, you know, kind of the, our most trusted institutions seem to have some uh, push to to use more AI, but it could be at some cost. I, I agreed. Agreed. I think you know, for me, maybe where I could, I think it's absolutely true. The institutions of democracy and of state can be either enhanced or damaged by the use of AI, and it comes back to norms. And again, the same question, right? We have norms to direct the human intelligence in the right way in democratic regimes, and they get directed in the wrong way in dictatorial regimes. But I think I'd like to take an example that I think everyone in your audience can relate to, which is, you know, teddy bears. So think, think of an AI-enabled teddy bear that comforts your toddler at night, that becomes its best friend, makes it laugh, plays with it, uh, and that has values embedded in it, that teddy bear in the way it reacts and the things it says that are nice or not nice that have been embedded in teddy bear by someone other than you. Uh, those values maybe can be possibly, however they've been embedded, even if they were good values that you share, the teddy bear could be hacked. Everything that's being said is being uploaded into the cloud, which means that your toddler's profile is being documented for anyone who wants to buy that information for commercial purpose in the future. That is the way in which AI, even today, start to be part of the house. And we all know also about obviously the Alexas of the world, etc. And that is a very insidious way in which AI, I think, is creating attrition in what we've always thought as something incredibly important to the human experience, which is privacy, which is the protection of the childhood experience, which is dignity. And my greatest fear is how the human experience is being affected by that slow, ubiquitous, quiet progression of AI in every domain of life, rather than the killer robot of you know, fantasy movies and sci-fi movies. You're able to, you know, parse extremely large data sets as part of your, you know, uh, occupation. And I'm just curious to know, you know, at some point, once that gets out there, like you said, it's, it's available to anybody who wants it. Um, so in effect, if we don't have a, a legal framework to prevent that from happening, it, it may have already happened to a large extent. Do you feel like you're you know, average listeners should be doing something right now to kind of prevent that eventuality? Well, I think this is a, a really important question for society. I think today we as citizens are really helpless to protect our privacy. Uh, the Europeans are taking a slightly different view, and Germany in particular, where you have greater ownership of your data. But I think it's a, it's a, it's a terrible, really, challenge. And it's not because you know, the data that's being made available is some great private secret you have. It's because the data, and it's something our legal regime is not prepared for, it's the things you do every day, which one of each doesn't matter, but all of which together create a terrible violation of privacy. So if a friend of yours, you know, tells you, hey, I saw you eating lunch at that restaurant the other day, you won't feel it's a violation of privacy. If your best friend has a list that says everything you spoke with, everything you've done, the doctors you went to, the political affiliations you have, and knows what you've done every minute of the day, what you've read, what you've bought, it would be incredibly creepy and a great violation, even if each one of those things may not feel shameful or anything like that. Uh, so today, we have surrendered our privacy, and our legal regime is simply not prepared to, to handle that, in my view. What do you think the average citizen can do? Is there some amount of action that they can take? 
I think, you know, it generally is to become much more assertive about their privacy rights. Now, today, when you sign up for a service on the cloud, you typically check a box. And unfortunately, there is nothing much more you can do but that. And you give away all your privacy every time that you sign a privacy agreement. So the way to be assertive is to uh, be engaged in the public dialogue, be willing to look at uh, organizations like ours, like the Future Society, who care about protecting the privacy of individuals. It is writing to your congressman about this and say specifically how violated you feel that you have to surrender your privacy to you know, use Netflix or something like that, uh, and that you demand that action be taken. In the end, things change when people want it to change. And of course, this is not very high up necessarily today in the uh, priorities of people who may have needs for healthcare and to send their kids to school, etc. But it affects so fundamentally the meaning of what it means to be human, whether or not you have any privacy or not, that I think it's a vital uh, issue for the functioning of society and for us to preserve a sense of dignity as citizens. And I think Europe on that front probably serves as a more hopeful, perhaps, uh, doctrine than what uh, we have in the U.S. today. And I would say, let me, let me just add this, that I think that's why the, what's happening in Dubai and the work of entities, I think, like the Future Society and like the IEEE on governance are absolutely vital uh, because we can't count on legislators to do that work and we need to drive it forth as citizens. And I'm engaged in the Future Society and elsewhere primarily as a citizen. In closing, I would just be interested to, to have your take on what is the, the best possible outcome? If we do a good job and we respond to this in a timely fashion, where do you see the world going in, in 10 years? I have been an entrepreneur involved in AI for over 20 years. So I'm among the optimists out there. I believe that AI can be a great force for good. So I think even the next two to four years, we can develop a set of reference governance frameworks that will become, in effect, part of the public dialogue and influence legislation in the, in the world to balance the benefits of AI while protecting citizens from its risks. That will be, from a legislative perspective, governance perspective, a huge success. And I think there the, the Dubai Governance Roundtable can have great influence. In terms of AI in our lives, I'm among those who think that... Um, on balance, the good guys will, in, will win over the bad guys. I'm one of those who believes that the displacement of jobs through automation will be slower and more tolerable than we think. Uh, and I'm one of those who believes that, especially for underserved communities across the world, uh, AI has the power to unlock educational opportunities, uh, financial opportunities uh, that today are absolutely inconceivable and that will unlock so much creativity and energy around the world that a lot of the jobs that are being lost in one domain uh, will be sort of created in so many other domains that today we simply cannot envision in every continent across the world. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed the talk. And that's it for today. But before you go, just a reminder that the International Conference on Robotics and Automation, ICRA, is just around the corner now. And we're still looking for kind, generous people to help us send some of our interviews to the conference. 
You can help by becoming a patron of the RoboHop podcast on Patreon. If you can spare just a few dollars a month, we'd be really grateful for your support. Just visit robohop.org forward slash podcast for more information and also to access all our past episodes. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. AI with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. <laughs>